Sir Balford, the 200 Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio was the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And like he does in every one of his appearances in Fangraphs Audio, in this conversation which follows, which follows this introduction, what he does is analyze all baseball. For example, Monday, uh, when we've recorded this conversation, and also when it has been posted to the internet website, Fangraphs.com, uh, this Monday re- represents the non-tender deadline for baseball, for Major League Baseball, or the tender deadline, whichever way uh, you want to think of it. Uh, in either case, I think we can all agree with uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald that tender is the night. It's a joke. Uh, additionally, uh, there is no proof to suggest that Ricky Nolasco, right-hander Ricky Nolasco, and other right-hander Phil Hughes are twins. Uh, however, they have both signed multi-year deals with a baseball club based in Minnesota. Are there more jokes like that to follow? Yes. Yes. And also funny ones as well. In this edition of Fangraphs Audio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron. Which, which episode begins right now? Actually, someone who's who's actually gone through terrible illness. Yeah. Um, but even if you just have anything and you go to WebMD, it turns into a, a nightmare. Yeah. Right. No, WebMD thinks you're dying. Yeah. No matter what you have. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but everything is a symptom of um, HIV or AIDS as well. Yes. It, it, no. No matter like if you're walking around, you could have AIDS. <laughs> you could. It's it's scary. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. I don't go to WebMD anymore. Yeah, I just uh, I asked my medical professional wife who uh, freaks out and thinks my leukemia is back, and then I get blood tests, and and, and that's how that goes. That seems like it's probably not bad. Yeah, no, I like getting blood tests. Super well, no, no, that seems horrible, but I'm yeah. just saying that it's good to have a medical professional in the family. It is sometimes. It is also bad when you when you don't want to go to the hospital a lot. Oh yeah, yeah, get me out of the hospital. Anyway, um. Let's, uh, that's been pleasant so far. Um, listen, uh, people are talking everywhere on the internet, at least the baseball related parts of the internet. Uh, they're talking about non-tender deadlines or tendering deadlines. Wait, you, you aren't leading with Willie Bloomquist? <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. I did see that. He, um, well, should we, shall we start with uh, Willie Bloomquist? I, I think we can probably talk about non-tender players. I think there, the four people who care about Willie Bloomquist, uh, can probably figure out what we think about that deal. There is a certain elegance to, to the signing of uh, Willie Bloomquist who goes back to, uh, Seattle Mariners. Yes, there there are some elements that continue to prove the Mariners don't know what they're doing. Well, it you know it's it's like this, Cameron. Uh, some and you've said it before yourself. Some some teams just need to sign that last piece. Yeah. Before they can contend for a world a world championship. I, I, I think when uh, you know your your starting outfield is uh, Michael Saunders, Abraham Almonte, and uh, Carlos Peguero, you definitely want to be allocating your resources to a twenty fifth man utility. Oh no, Cameron, where'd you go? I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry, we didn't catch that last part, but I'm sure it was. Uh, I'm sure it was full of analysis. Y- y- utility player for six million dollars, yay! That's yeah. basically the summation. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I, well, I will say, uh, even if he's not a great starting player for a major league team, Abraham Almonte is actually interesting. <coughs> he's in- he's interesting at least. 
He is interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, in talking to some of the people who saw him regularly in Tacoma last year, they actually, uh, there's a few of them who think that he's going to become like a quality major league regular. One that suggests he's going to make multiple all-star teams. Uh, so this isn't necessarily just a guy who put up really good numbers in the PCL and you say, oh, you know, it's the PCL. Everyone can hit down there. Uh, there's some tools there. I mean, he's a pretty athletic guy. He's a switch hitter. Uh, he's got some power. I think he's he's pretty raw, and uh, you know he might not ever turn into anything, but uh, he's he's at least interesting, which is more than you can say for the 24 other players on the Mariners roster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I mean, if team has an interesting player, and you say we already have uh, two regulars, and we'll let this guy start because he might have some skills. Um, then that's great. I think maybe the thing with Almonte is a little undersized, isn't he? Is. He's like five nine, five ten, but he's built like a horse. He's yeah. a he's a you know not quite Eric Thames, but uh, a pretty solid dude. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that yeah, and that that's probably hurt his uh, prospect status in the past, though. I'm assuming. Yeah, I think also the fact that he was an alcoholic probably didn't help. Yeah, uh, not, yeah. yeah you know, normally not a great thing for your prospect status if you're. Drinking yourself away, but he got himself cleaned up last year, and there was actually a pretty good story in the Tacoma News Tribune about how um, he's really turned his life around and, and has committed himself to becoming a player again. And uh, you know he's on the verge of having a, a major league t- roster spot. I mean, he might not end up as a starter, but you know I think he's going to probably be on the team next year, which is not so bad for a guy who was you know drinking his career away a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's good. I, I will be watching Abraham Almonte with interest this year. See what happens. Yes. Yes. Mm, uh, yeah, so today, is tonight, uh, we're talking on Monday, uh, is tonight the, am I to believe this is the non-tender deadline? Yes, I think as uh, Keith Law has just named it, the tenderized deadline. Right, we're gonna, yeah. We're going to find out which players are tenderized. Tenderized, yes, that's right. Um, it requires a mallet of some sort, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, big whacking stick. Yeah. Um, now, do, are you whacking the players who who you are tendering or are not tendering? Well, if you're not tenderizing them, you're not hitting them with a mallet. So I guess the ones that get kept are the ones getting hit with a mallet. Yes, that doesn't sound pleasant either. Yeah. And uh, so essentially, um, I'm going to what I'm going to do is summarize it poorly, and then you correct me um, where where it's needed. Uh, this is the deadline for when you say uh, this is a player we still have under contract, uh, and if we offer him, if we decide to tender him a deal, that means uh, we're opening up the possibility of, uh, for example, going to arbitration with him. Yeah, that's basically what it is. So basically it's players who are arbitration eligible uh, are going to make some amount of money if they're offered arbitration. Uh, you know, if you decide to tender the offer now, you're basically on the hook for, uh, you know, probably somewhere in between what you're going to ask for and what they're going to ask for, depending on how many times they've gone to arbitration. You know, they can make somewhere between a million dollars and, you know, $20 million, you know, if they're amazing, uh, like Tim Lincecum a couple years ago. Um so you're you're basically saying, you know, I think that this player is going to be worth the expected arbitration amount. Uh, so I'm going to offer him arbitration, and we'll figure out his contract in a few months. Uh, or you say, I think this player is not going to be worth his his arbitration amount, and therefore I'm going to make him a free agent, and maybe still try and resign him, but for less than he would have gotten in arbitration. Uh, but then he becomes a free agent, and everyone else can try and sign him too. So uh, it's a little bit of a guessing game with some of these guys. Where I think like John Axford is a pretty interesting case. I think you know as a former proven closer with a decent amount of saves, he's going to get some money if he goes to arbitration this winter. Um, but, you know, there's also a crazy amount of money in baseball right now, so it's possible the Cardinals could not tender him, and then he could end up with a three-year deal. Uh, so I think guys like that are probably the tough decisions where you uh, maybe try and guess what other teams are going to uh, gonna pay for a player. And, you know, if you, even if you're not interested in keeping them, there's some argument to be made for tendering a player 
who's arbitration eligible, who then might have some trade value. Uh, so if you can find a team that wants to give John Exford a three-year deal and you can trade him John Exford on a one-year deal instead, maybe you come away with something. Right, yeah. So I was thinking uh, I was thinking back to last year, and I, I remember, for example, I believe Mark Reynolds was non-tendered last year. He, he was, yes. Yeah, and um, um, he might have been the player of most note, and he ended up, of course, signing with Cleveland, and he had a very Mark Reynolds-type season um, in 2013. Is there a certain type of player? Uh, now, you mentioned that the closer – uh, might be the sort who, um, uh, or you know, in this case, a former closer with John Axford, uh, might uh, might receive. You definitely you're doing something with your dog, or your dog. Uh, I'm not doing anything. She is bringing me squeaky toys and asking, begging me to play with her. But I'm walking away. <laughs> okay, all right. You have to. Are you a dog whisperer? Would you consider yourself? I, I am not a dog whisperer. I, I think at this point I have decided that I'm not even a good dog trainer. She is, uh, she is training me, and uh, I'm losing. Okay. You, um, you, you mentioned closers uh, as a sort that uh, might, be elig- might be likely to get a bunch from arbitration and therefore maybe, uh, depending on the, the, the organization, or maybe less likely to be tendered. Is there, are, there types, are there other types of players who might meet that description? Uh, I think in general it depends on I – mean, there's not one type of player that's going to likely get non-tendered more than others. It really depends on kind of the marginal performance and how many times you've gone through arbitration. The guys who are really at risk of getting non-tendered are, are the guys who are on their second and third trips through and are coming off a bad year. Uh, Axford, in his case, is coming off two bad years. But, uh, you know, Mark Reynolds, I think it was, was going to be his third time through arbitration. Once you go through arbitration multiple times – uh, you start to get pretty expensive, especially if you've been a regular for a while. Um, you know, you're probably getting up into the six to ten million dollar range, even if you're not that good. Uh, I think it's really the number of trips through arbitration that you're looking at. Usually, you don't see too many guys on their first time through arbitration getting non-tendered, unless they're really just awful, because you're only going to get a million dollars or so uh, on your first time through arbitration, especially if you haven't been very good. Right. Uh, are there players who? Uh, th- this is a, a very naive question, but um, I I save those for you. Um, are there players who make less, uh, for example, their third time through the arbitration process than they than they would have their second or first? Not usually. So the arbitration process is actually set up to limit uh, pay decreases. You can only uh, a team that is going to make an offer of arbitration can actually offer no less than eighty percent of the prior year's salary. Um, so you're not allowed to offer a drastic pay cut. If you paid a guy ten million dollars last year in arbitration, and then he missed the entire season, you can't then offer him five. Your minimum offer would be eight. Uh, so there's not really a scenario where players are going to take big pay cuts in arbitration, and really uh, they rarely take any pay cuts. Even if you've missed the entire season or you were really terrible, uh, what usually happens is you end up settling for something very close to what you got paid last year if the team wants to keep you, uh, and you just say, okay, I don't deserve a raise. So we'll just, you know, renew my contract at, at essentially with a salary that I had a year ago. Um, but there's not really a system in place to cut a player's paycheck through arbitration. If you want to do that, you non-tender them and then in the, the market dictate what they're going to get as free agents. Is there uh, – I mean, I assume that the part of this um, – uh, that particular way of dealing with arbitration um, is something that uh, the union has insisted on because they don't want to see players receive less money. At the same time – uh, if you say that a player has to earn 80% of what he earned the, the previous season, uh, if he's going through the arbitration process, then of course, you know, like Mark Reynolds last year, or you know, like a number of players this year who will be non-tendered, um, then you're then some players will naturally be cut. 
And so I'm wondering if, uh, like, from a um, f- from the union's point of view, is this is that the ultimate strategy so far as bargaining or as far as the arbitration process is concerned? Well, I think from the union's perspective, uh, getting non-tendered isn't that big a deal because, or it's not, it shouldn't really be something to be avoided because then you're a free agent, right? So you might say, like in Mark Reynolds' case, he took like a 40% pay cut, uh, over what I think he was projected to get like $11 million in arbitration from the Orioles. And he signed for six, six or seven million with the Indians. Um, but he got to choose what team he went to. And I think there, there's a decent amount of value in, uh, you know, picking your own destiny and and where you want to play. And so I think from the union's perspective, they say, okay, if we limit uh, cost or team-controlled pay decreases to where the the only other option really is pay them the same amount you paid them last year or set them free and make them a free agent, and then they get to pick where they want to play, uh, you know, within reason. <laughs> Not every player can sign with the Yankees if they want to. Um, I think then – they, that's still looked at as a win for the players association because they got uh they got a, their player early free agency. Okay. Um you you mentioned uh, for this year John Axford is an interesting case and you know maybe uh, well not certainly not as bad as his numbers uh in Milwaukee or I'm assuming not as bad as his numbers in Milwaukee. Um you know still throws relatively hard and still has what three pitches. Um you know, so uh, there's something there. Uh, is there. Are there any other players who you sort of view as interesting cases? And, and if there are players who are likely to be non-tendered that might make sense or might be uh, sought after by other clubs? Yeah, I think the, a couple of the other guys that I would look for today are uh, Andrew Bailey with the Red Sox, another kind of closer, uh, former closer, uh, coming off an injury-plagued season. Uh, but, you know, uh, this time uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Bailey was a highly coveted, uh, trade target, and the Red Sox gave up a pretty decent price to get him in Josh Reddick. Uh, so I think, you know, if, if the Red Sox decide to cut Bailey loose, uh, he'll be a, he'll be a free agent that teams are gonna have pretty serious interest in, and, uh, when you're, you know, the top free agent options are like Fernando Rodney and Brian Wilson, uh, Bailey could end up being a pretty interesting closer candidate, which I think is why the Red Sox will probably end up tendering him and then maybe trading him. Uh, I, I could see that happening. I think Jerome Williams, the Angels, is going to be another interesting case. Uh, they're going to non-tender him most likely in order to save three or four million dollars because they're broke after giving all their money to Albert Pools and Josh Hamilton. Uh, I think you can make a pretty case, pretty decent case that Jerome Williams is a perfectly acceptable number five starter. Uh, I think when you look around the league and see what pitchers are signing for right now, uh, $4 million for one year, Jerome Williams, not, not such a bad thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if Williams ended up getting, you know, more than that or a multi-year deal after the Angels cut him loose, uh, which suggests that maybe, you know, the Angels are undervaluing Jerome Williams a little bit. Jerome Williams has been around for a long time. I, um, he's not, he's not that old. He's still born in the 80s. Uh, but yeah, he, I remember he was like a top pitching prospect with the Giants about a decade ago and he was yeah. going in the mid 90s and now he's a, he's a dude who throws 88. Yeah, and he's, yeah, right. He's kind of like a, well, he's like a, a crafty righty, but he's not yeah. 40 like he's supposed to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think he was actually a top prospect at the same time Boof Bonzer was. I think the two of them were like, uh, the next big thing for the Giants, which, you know, didn't now, really wait, turn out. Is this before or after Jesse Fopper? I think uh, maybe a little after Fopper might have been the late nineties. Okay. And, uh, Williams and Williams and Bonzer were early two thousands. Yeah, Jesse Fopper was wasn't he supposed to destroy the world? Was he supposed he to? Was. He was. He had the crazy high strikeout rates and crazy mechanics that destroyed his arm. He oh. also couldn't throw strikes, which is a problem. Now, and is that before or after Ryan Anderson? Uh, way after Ryan Anderson was mid nineties. Ryan oh, Anderson was like uh, during the Nirvana days. Okay, all right. Those two occupy the same place in your mind. I mean, they both are, uh, of course, associated with your uh, hometown. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I remember uh, Ryan Anderson showing up at spring training and being called, like, the arrogant young kid, and this was I was in, like, junior high or something. So. Right. So you understood, uh, you yeah. understood that. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, so one player that was a non-tender candidate, and I, I suppose is more than that now, was uh, Michael McHenry. Uh, this we're not going to talk about Michael McHenry. Um, okay, good. Thank God. <laughs> the, um, I mean, not to say that. I mean, he, he has his own virtues, you know. Uh, but he did, he had a difficult year in 2013 and was injured a little bit. And uh, but one of the reasons that he's uh, not being not going to be a pirate anymore is because uh, just today, I believe, it's been confirmed that the Pirates have acquired Chris Stewart. Yes. Uh, which is notable, I guess, in the sense that Chris Stewart. At some level, is one of these. Um, I believe he's sort of known for his pitch framing abilies, in part. Yep. Right. I mean, basically, last year the Yankees got Russell Martin, or the Pirates got Russell Martin from the Yankees because he was really good at pitch framing. Uh, now that a year ago, or a year later, they're doing it again, getting Chris Stewart, who not nearly as good as Russell Martin, uh, but same basic idea of good framer, supposed to help the pitchers, uh, maybe undervalued if that is a skill that is not being paid for in the market the way it should be. Um, but I think it'll be uh, interesting to see uh, if the, uh, how the Pirates pitchers respond with now uh, both Martin and Stewart. Theoretically, their uh, their strike zone should be much larger than most other teams, uh, assuming that Major League Baseball doesn't do something about this whole framing issue and fix the strike zone eventually. Yeah, right. Well, that's what I care about. Because, um, right, because Martin, Martin, of course, was a Yankee and then became a Pirate, and Stewart was a Yankee and became a Pirate. I mean that's uh, that's only two data points and doesn't isn't necessarily significant. But it, it led me to believe. It, Except besides, like, um, I think it used to be the case that, like, the the Yankees had a special deal with maybe some Kansas City athletics teams so that the, the best players on uh, Kansas City or maybe it was the St. Louis Browns would just go to the Yankees whenever they got good. I, I, was, I was wondering if you would sort of uh, – if you could recall any, any clubs that um, with some frequency either did deals with each other or maybe players went, went one direction. Yeah, I think that most of that has been uh, done away with. I don't think there are, uh, you know, farm systems set up at the major league level where one team is just shuffling their players to another team. I think we see certain teams make a lot of trades with other teams because their GMs have relationships with each other, uh, or you know, they, the the current GM used to work for the other GM. Uh, and I think you know, I think it was back in the you know 90s or 2000s, but it seems like the Tigers and Padres made a trade like every week. Because, uh, Randy Smith had been the GM in both cities, uh, and had, you know, kind of put his footprint on the, the organization. Uh, and it seemed like they were swapping players, uh, fairly regularly. Whenever the Tigers made a trade, it was almost always with the Padres. Um, but I think, you know, more recently, I can't think of one instance where a team has become a farm system for another team. And in this case, I think it would be kind of humorous if the Yankees were acting as the farm system for the Pirates, given their <laughs> respective payrolls. Yeah. Uh, yes, that would be strange. It, now, if, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, Dayton Moore has shown some proclivity for picking up ex-Atlanta Braves. Is that is that not right? Yeah, but I think that's not so much uh, the Braves and, and Royals making trades as much as it is Dayton Moore signing players that he was uh, over when he was the farm director in Atlanta and just picking up uh, former Braves prospects that failed out and and uh, now have hit the market. I don't think that's so much that the the Dayton Moore and and Frank Wren are making trades all the time. That's just Dayton Moore remembering scouting reports from 15 years ago and thinking they're still valuable. <laughs> well, speaking of that, uh, we've seen that uh, the Cub the Cubs, of course, um, made trade uh, made a trade for Anthony Rizzo um, after um, after Rizzo had been traded to uh, the Padres. Yeah. 
when uh, what's his butt was the GM Jet, there? Jet Hoyer, yes. Yeah, Jet right. Hoyer traded for Anthony Rizzo twice after drafting him. Right, and uh, and I believe that George Kataris just signed with the Chicago Cubs as well, after having uh, they, been they traded for him. Yeah, but yeah, they, uh, they traded for him right after having originally been uh, signed by the Boston Red Sox, drafted yep. by the Boston Red Sox. Yep. Yeah. So that's so, right. There, there, there are teams besides uh, the Royals who like to uh, pick up players that they've been fond of for a very long time. Uh, I think you can make a case that, you know, being fond of Anthony Rizzo, probably a better thing than being fond of Jeff Francoeur. <laughs> Although they both have, um, uh, they both have, uh, surnames that lend themselves to, uh, being identified for uh, ethnic purposes. Uh, Francoeur, right. of course, is very clearly French and Rizzo is very clearly Italian. Maybe that. Right. Rizzo's easier to spell. Yeah, that's, a, that's also true. Um, in fact, well, because Italian is like, I think it's like entirely phonetic Italian. You pronounce every letter, whereas in French, every French word has like like half the letters you don't even say. Yeah, they're all yeah. hidden. They yeah. just sneak them in there. Yeah, they do. Yeah, all right. Um, oh, how do we get down that disgusting tangent? Oh yeah, because Chris Stewart is going to be a pirate. Uh, yes, that's a that's a fact. Oh, listen, the Twins have signed some. We actually have two posts up on this today. Uh, I like how this this news is like the last thing we're going to talk about. After going through Willie Bloomquist and Chris Stewart and the spelling of Jeff Rancor, now we're going to get to Ricky Nolasco. Yeah, okay. Well, because I don't think the Twins are going to win – are going to – the Twins – the Twins to me, for whatever reason, as a, as a totally neutral uh, fan, the Twins are one of the least interesting teams to talk about. Uh, but they have prospects, and you love prospects. I do like prospects. Yeah, I do. I like fringy prospects. They have some of those too. But the um, yes. So in the what the last week, the um, the Minnesota Twins have signed Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes. And yes. Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes are interesting signings for the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> I guess for a couple reasons. One, because they don't usually pay people money. Um, and they've just signed two right-handers to a combined seven years. It's also interesting because, uh, for whatever their weakness is, Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes can strike people out, um, and uh, they and Twins pitchers generally don't do that. Yeah. Uh, as Jeff Sullivan pointed out in his piece today, the relievers, the relievers for the Minnesota Twins this year struck out more batters than the starters. Yeah. That was a running joke on Twitter. Actually, for the first half of the season, I was doing uh, twin starters versus you Darvish strikeout comparisons, and f- until about the All Star break, it was pretty close. That's that's uh, that's yeah, that's significant. Yeah, and uh, and and yet not surprising entirely, given the sort of pitcher uh, that the Twins have pursued. Um, you know, for what since Scott Erickson or something, right? Yeah, I mean, I think probably more Brad Radke is kind of the mold of Twins pitchers and kind of the ideal of what they want their starting pitchers to be. I think they're trying to move away from that a little bit. They made some comments last year when they traded Denard's band for Alex Meyer that they noticed that their organization lacked power arms and lacked guys who could miss bats, and they were going to try and move away from pitch-to-contact starting, and then they posted the you know highest contact rate for any starting staff in 50 years. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the failure of their team to – to have those guys already doesn't necessarily mean that they're continuing with that preference going forward. I think there is some evidence that the Twins are going to try and move away from their historic pitch-to-contact change-up specialist types. And, uh, you know, signing Nolasco and Hughes is a move towards 
uh, a little more high strikeout. Uh, still guys who don't walk anyone. I mean, I think the Twins are always going to like low-walk guys, but I think they're probably moving away from non-stuff pitch-to-contact guys, and, and you know, as we saw, they're willing to pay to do it now. Yeah, right, but are um, are, the, are, the, are those guys, what are they going to do for the Twins as a team? I know that you think, well, no, you, you put some numbers on it last week. You said if a team is maybe thinks it's going to, be what in the 82 win area i think you know or the 81 82 win area or maybe it was even a little bit lower um then they should they should acquire some sort of talent or, or should at least not abandon the season entirely do you do you think that adding um phil hughes and ricky nolasco to that club is um, is makes the twins <coughs> something uh i think the twins are going to be bad next year and i don't think that these moves are going to make the Twins not bad. I do think, and I will continue to think, that there are reasons for bad teams to try and get better. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, a team that projects to be uh, a non-contender in one season should just completely punt and say, you know what, we're not going to spend any money, we're not going to put any talent on the field, we're just going to accept our sucking, and we're going to, you know, lose 120 games. I think there's uh, uh, an eradication of the fan base that can happen if you show an apathy towards at least trying to win or trying to put a decent product on the field. Uh, and I think there is a value in winning 85 games instead of 75. Uh, the question is, you know, what trade-offs do you make? In signing Ricky Nolasco and, and Phil Hughes, I don't think that the Twins have heavily borrowed from their future and have really hamstrung their ability to win long-term in order to add a few wins in the short term. That's the moves you don't really don't want to make when you're, you know, giving a guy a six- or seven-year deal that's really going to be terrible at the back end or you're drastically overpaying, uh, you know, maybe you're paying $10 million a win or something like that. Um, or you're trading, you know, a decent young player or blocking a young player uh, from getting playing time with an older guy who probably doesn't have a future. Those are the kind of moves you want to avoid. The Twins didn't have anyone worth blocking. <laughs> There's no one in the rotation that uh, <laughs> needed innings next year that is going to lose out because they have Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes. The prices they paid are not obnoxious. Uh, I think, you know, they're basically right in line with what you'd expect from, from the market. And I think they, they make the Twins a little bit better and a little more watchable. So, uh, you know, I think... Hughes is a pretty decent candidate to have a, a rebound season uh, where, you know, they gave him 324. If he has a decent season, his home run rate comes down in a much bigger park, they can have a decent trade chip on their hands at the trade deadline or even next winter and say, you know what, who wants to, you know, trade for a decent, durable starter coming off a decent year at 216? That's going to be a piece. And so I think, uh, you know, Nolasco and, and Hughes could potentially be uh, valuable trade chips if the Twins have a really miserable season and want to, you know, flip them for young players in a, in a year. Or they could potentially be pieces where they're both young enough to where maybe they're part of the next good team, the Twins team, in two or three years. I think at the prices they paid, this isn't going to prevent them from from adding quality players down the line. They're not steals necessarily; they're market price uh, additions. But I think these are the kinds of moves that we shouldn't criticize just because the Twins aren't going to win next year. Right. The uh, the Phil Hughes signing in particular that was eight twenty four. That has a little bit of the Jason Vargas deal to it. I I would think. Yeah, three twenty-four. Uh, Eight twenty-four would be uh, three million a year <laughs> yeah, for a very okay, long wow. term. Wow, <laughs> that would be a, a fun contract to analyze at least. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I think uh, right. This is basically the Jason Vargas contract minus a year. And I and I've noted on Twitter when uh, Matt Myers, who's my editor over at ESPN Insider and a friend of mine, uh, was critiquing this deal that uh, Hughes and Vargas are actually pretty similar. Uh, they're both. Um, you know, kind of low walk, moderate strikeout guys. Hughes gets a few more strikeouts, but he gives up a few more home runs. Both of them have home run problems. They're extreme fly ball pitchers. Uh, Hughes is younger and, and been a little healthier. Uh, Vargas has been a little bit better. 
um, and Vargas got the fourth year. I mean, I think this is the price the market is paying for, you know, reliable back-end starters who, you know, have a little bit of a gopher ball problem. And I think, you know, if you're going to look at the market and say, this is what it's paying relative to what it's paying, uh, is this a good deal? Then I think the Hughes, the Hughes signing works out just fine for the Twins. I think the argument is more along whether the, the, a team like the Twins should be making market value signings or whether they should be just digging through the dustbin, trying to find value or trying to find young players who might turn into something. Uh, I think that there's room for both, personally. Right. Well, they did that last year with... Um... Not not success. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, they signed they, they signed Scott Baker, I believe, right? No, he went to the Cubs. Oh, no, right. They had Scott Baker and someone yeah. else signed him to a potential but, value signing. Yeah. Uh, they had the guy who was on the Mets. They had Kevin Correa oh, and yeah. uh, with Jason Marquis, I think, was there for a little while. Oh, uh, it wasn't good. It was no. it was uh, a big batch of crap. Yeah, right. Okay, so so they actually have two potentially serviceable starters. Yeah, right. I think you know the Twins' rotation is now going to be less awful uh, okay. for a price of twenty million dollars. I mean, you know, they spent some money to make their team a little less awful, uh, but I think you know, given the influx of television revenues and and where the finances of MLB are, uh, it's better for your team to spend money to be less awful than for the owner to just pocket it and run away. And uh, you know, you could maybe make a case that the Twins would have been better off spending seventy million on payroll this year and one hundred and ten next year. But that's not how MLB teams work. They spend, you know, whatever their payroll is, they keep it pretty consistent from year to year. They budget on an annual basis. They don't carry over savings. Uh, so I, I think the reality is that uh, the Twins are a better team, and and they probably needed to spend some money this winter. Um, there's a, maybe a, you know, a an ideal world where they just carry over all the savings and go bananas in two years when Sano and, and Buxton and all those guys are ready, but that's not how MLB works. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, the uh, winter meetings begin, what, in a week or something like that? Next next Monday, yeah. Yeah, next Monday. Are you going to be there? I am going to be there. Um, and you're thrilled, you said, to be there? No, nah, not at all. <laughs> I, I've, uh, I enjoy the winter meetings for the social aspects that are friends that I run into every year uh, that I get to spend time with that I don't get to see the rest of the year. Um, so I, I enjoy catching up with friends. The rest of it is terrible. Okay. And uh, is there anything uh, to anticipate in particular at this year's winter meetings? Is it? Uh, I know it. Had, you know, obviously, there's the idea associated with it that a lot of deals come out of it. Uh, is that something that happened last year? And is that what we ex- do? We expect anything like that this year? I think what we've generally seen is that the big moves don't really happen at the winter meetings anymore. I mean, you know, I think a couple years ago the the Albert Pools news broke as we were all leaving, like the Thursday morning after the Rule 5 draft. Everyone's packing their bags and going to the airport, and then now breaking news, the Angels give Albert Pools $240 million. That was pretty annoying. Uh, And I think actually the Josh Hamilton thing went down at the winter meetings last year, so maybe the Angels' annual overpay happens during the winter meetings. Uh, but we don't think the Angels are going to overpay anyone this winter, so that's probably off the table. I think what we generally see is that a lot of uh, legwork is done at the winter meetings where teams talk to a bunch of te- other teams about trades and free agent signings, and uh, they they do a bunch of stuff uh, that gets close, and they evaluate all their options, and they all get on planes, they go home, and they do stuff two or three days later. So uh, like I think the David Price thing is probably the most – uh, anticipated trade negotiation of the winter. There hasn't been a lot of rumors about the Rays uh, uh, asking Price and, and potential suitors, but I think you could hear a bunch of stuff about David Price next week, hear a lot of teams, you know, talking to Andrew Friedman, trying to make a deal for Price and not see Price traded until, you know, maybe the following Monday. Okay. All right. That sounds great. You're going to be there. We'll, we'll have a – well, maybe not necessarily Monday, but Tuesday maybe we'll have a, a report directly from the, the bowels of the winter meetings. 
Well, I get there Sunday afternoon, so we could do one Monday. Uh, but the, the basically the schedule of the winter meetings is like Monday everyone shows up. Uh, some people show up to Sunday night, but for the most part, people fly in Monday and start wandering around and you know getting their logistics and uh, and then you know stuff doesn't actually start happening until Tuesday or Wednesday, and then everyone leaves on Thursday. So like you know the beginning and the end are kind of uh, you know not much going on, and then there's that two days where stuff might happen. And uh, now listen, is David Appleman going this year? He is going. I okay. think uh, the, the Fangraphs crew is going to be Eno Saras, David Laurel, David Appleman, and myself. Okay, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I remember, I know all those people. You do? Yep. Yes. In, in past years, we have dragged you to the winter meetings, but this year you're going to stay in France and eat bread. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, hey, listen, looks like uh, that's it. Calm, uh, calm before the storm? Uh, we don't know. Uh, yeah, hopefully. I would like it to be like a nice calm week. Uh, now that Jeff Sullivan is back, I'm okay with transactions happening. I'm, I will no longer be annoyed by them. Uh, but, uh, I still wouldn't, wouldn't mind a little bit of a break. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. I, hey, listen, and I hope you get better and I hope you go, uh, hope you make your dentist appointment tomorrow. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and also, uh, some, something to note if people listen to us on Monday or sometime before Tuesday, whenever, is uh, Zips's, Zips are going to be coming out, the Zips projections. Awesome. I look forward to uh, tons and tons and tons of words on players who will never hear from again. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess we'll do that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that right after we get off air. How about? Sounds good. Okay, that has been uh, – so thank you, Dave Cameron. That's the, that's the <laughs> base of the bottom line. Thank you. Yeah, okay. That's uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. <coughs> <laughs> and that has been Dave Cameron's cop. Thank <laughs> you.